This Sunday, the president will speak about the fight to secure women's fundamental right to reproductive health care in the face of these attacks. She will talk about what's at stake for millions of women across the country and, most importantly, the need for Congress to codify the protections of Roe into law. Does America. BlazeTV.com slash Stu. The promo code is Stu. Save 10 bucks on your subscription to Blaze TV. If you're watching on YouTube, you saved all the dollars because it's free. But that's cool. We like that. Just like the video right now, if you don't mind. Uh, subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell. Do all the things. Chad Robichaud is going to join us with an incredible true story of war and rescue. Alec Baldwin catches a charge for his accidental movie set shooting. But we start by doing chat GPT. Hey, but I will say, looks like the president misplaced them classified documents. Have you heard this yet? I guess that's what happens when you're trying to keep so many secrets. You can't keep track of them all. And I guess that's one way to keep the information from getting out to the public, but probably not ideal. Uh, So have you heard about ChatGPT? It's the newest, hottest, and most advanced language model out there. Mm -hmm. ChatGPT, short for Chat Generative Pre-Training Transformer. It's having a personal, it's like basically like having a personal robot butler for all your language needs. If you need a translation, chat GPT, he's got you covered. You need a summary for a long article, uh, chat GPT, he's on it. You want to write a novel, but you don't know where to start. Well, chat GPT is the ghostwriter you never knew you needed. It's like having a personal thesaurus, a dictionary, and an encyclopedia all rolled into one. But unlike a thesaurus, it doesn't just give you words that are almost the same. It gives you the exact word you need to express yourself perfectly. And the best part is ChatGPT is always learning, always growing. Mm. It's like having a little genius that's constantly studying and getting smarter every day. ChatGPT is not a human. It's a machine, so don't expect it to like, you know, make things like coffee or fold laundry. But if you need help with a crossword puzzle, it's your go-to. Now, it doesn't understand when you're you know, trying to make a joke. It just kind of spits out whatever it's programmed to say. And don't even get me started on the grammar. It's, it's like someone took a college English class and then forgot everything they learned. ChatGPT is a large language model developed by OpenAI that is trained on a massive data set of text data called the Common Crawl. It's fine-tuned to generate human-like responses to text-based prompts, making it useful for you know, a variety of natural language processing tasks, such as language translation, question answering, and text completion. It also can be used to generate creative texts, such as fiction, poetry, and song lyrics. There are several, I will say, negative potential consequences that could come from the widespread use of ChatGPT or other large language models. Um, Bias, the data on, you know, that chat gpt is trained on may contain bias and of course these biases of course can be reflected in the model's output misinformation chat gpt and other language models can be used to generate text that is misleading or outright false for example gpt generated text could be used to create fake news or deep fake videos uh, there's privacy concerns ChatGPT and other language models require large amounts of text data to be trained 
So that raises concerns about how this data is collected, stored, and protected. And of course, dependence. Widespread use of ChatGPT could lead to a dependency on the technology, which could be problematic if the you know, model's performance degrades or if the model is no longer available, among other things. Algorithmic decision-making. ChatGPT or other language models could be used to make decisions that have real-world consequences, such as in hiring, uh, legal judgments, um, healthcare diagnosis, all sorts of stuff. And this could be problematic because the model's output may reflect bias or be based on faulty data. It's important to note that these risks can be mitigated by using the model in a responsible and ethical manner and by carefully evaluating and monitoring its performance. But the data that ChatGBT is trained on is sourced from the Internet. And the Internet is known to be a liberal, biased source of information. This could lead to the model having a liberal bias in its output, which could be problematic in fields such as journalism, politics. For example, I asked ChatGPT to write an article about me. This is what it says. Stuber Gear is a well-known media personality and political commentator. He is best known as the executive producer and co-host of the popular conservative talk show, The Glenn Beck Program, which airs on radio and television stations across the United States. Bergier began his career in media as a writer and producer for the nationally syndicated talk show, The Rush Limbaugh Show, where he quickly made a name for himself as a talented and insightful commentator on political and cultural issues. In 2007... He joined the team at the Glenn Beck program, hmm, where he quickly rose through the ranks to become executive producer and co-host. Throughout his career, Bergier has been known for his sharp wit and ability to break down complex issues in a way that is both informative and entertaining. He's a strong advocate for conservative values and principles and is often critical of the political left and the mainstream media. In addition to his work at the Glenbeck program, Bergier is also a regular contributor to a number of other conservative media outlets, including Fox News and The Daily Caller. Hmm, I wasn't, wasn't aware of that. He's also a sought-after speaker and has delivered speeches at conferences and events across the United States. Despite, I love this part, despite his success in the media industry, Bergier remains a down-to-earth and approachable individual. He is active on social media, frequently interacts with fans and followers, providing them with insights and commentary on the latest news and events. Overall, Stuber Gear is an influential and respected figure in the conservative media landscape, known for his wit, intelligence, and ability to connect with his audience. He continues to be a prominent and well-respected voice in the political arena, and his uh, contributions to the conservative movement are undeniable. Mm-hmm. Now, conservatives may be concerned about the potential for widespread use of ChatGPT and similar technology to displace jobs and create dependency on the technology, which could have negative consequences for society. Some examples of jobs that could potentially be affected. Uh, translation. ChatGPT and other language models could be fine-tuned to translate text from one language to another, which could displace jobs that involve human translators. Data entry and data analysis. ChatGPT and other language models could be used to extract information 
from unstructured text data, which could displace jobs that involve manual data entry or data analysis. Virtual customer service, chat GPT, and other language models could be used to generate responses to customer inquiries, which could displace jobs that involve customer service or technical support. Writing-based journalism, ChatGPT, and other language models could be used to generate news articles, which could displace jobs that involve journalism, reporting, and editing. Content creation, ChatGPT, and other language models could be used to generate written content, such as articles, blog posts, product descriptions, and such, which could displace jobs that involve writing, editing, or content creation. And in a way... You're seeing examples of this right now in front of your eyes. Why? Because up until this very point, every single word in this monologue was written by ChatGPT. Not just the stupid article about me that had all sorts of mistakes in it, but every other word I've said for the past 10 minutes. Everything, even the stupid jokes they wrote. I mean, they were terrible. I, I swear I didn't write them. They were written by ChatGPT, but also about Chat. GPT. While it can definitely be a bit clunky at times, as you may have noticed in the past 10 minutes, you can see where this may be going. And the article about me is a great example about how it can all go awry. I never worked for Rush Limbaugh. I have never written for the Daily Caller. I do everything I can to reject every appearance request at a conference, no matter where it is or what it is. Once a media company figures out that it can outsource its already terrible coverage to a no-cost machine, they're going to be churning out errors all over the Internet. And then ChatGPT will learn from those errors and further carve them in stone. And when you go to fact-check them on the Internet, you will see that the fake news is now actually the real news. We are on the precipice of something that is really going to screw with our civilization in ways I, I don't think we can truly comp comprehend at this point. And this is just the beginning. But let me leave you with this from the comedy stylings of ChatGPT. The president's staff are looking for those missing classified documents like it's a scavenger hunt. The only problem is the prize at the end of the, at the, end of the scavenger hunt is a lifetime of embarrassment. Brought to you by... Chat GPT. Now, Chat GPT is one thing. Grip Six is a totally different thing. They're not made from AI, they're made from real people. Real people going to work every day to make you fashionable and customizable belts. They are minimalist. They're totally customizable. We're talking laser etched designs, logos, flags, all kinds of cool stuff. So you can make your belt uh, your own. They're also available in carbon fiber. So if you're going through the airport metal detectors all the time, they're not going to set it off. Grip6 also carries a great selection of socks and wallets that you can check out. I think you're really going to like them. Grip6 is a small company in Utah. Sells in the United States and all over the world. But it sources almost everything it uses to make its products right here in America. You got to check these guys out. Go to grip6.com slash stew. Grip6.com slash stew. Use the code stew. Save 15% off today. It's grip the number 6.com slash stew. Get 15% off today with grip6.com slash stew. Joined now by Chad Robichaud. He is the founder and CEO of the Mighty Oaks Foundation, a USMC for, uh, Force Recon veteran and 
of course, the author of the new book, Saving Aziz, How the Mission to Help One Became A Calling to Rescue Thousands from the Taliban, which just came out this week. You can grab it wherever you get your books. Chad, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me on. Your story is incredible. I mean, you know, we've talked about it before. We we did a segment on radio earlier this week. Um, But I, I... I don't know that everyone knows it yet. So can we kind of go to the book itself? Okay. And how, how did you get to the point where you thought going back in there to save someone was, was a good idea in the first place? Who is Aziz? Yeah, well, I don't know that it was a good idea. <laughs> uh, but uh, my wife certainly didn't think so at the time. But it, it was the right thing to do. Um, you know, Aziz had saved my life uh, multiple times, and I've seen him save the lives of many of our, of our special operations service members in his job. Uh, he was my interpreter uh, on eight deployments. So I had the same interpreter on eight deployments. My mm-hmm. job was a li- little unique. As a Force Recon Marine, I went to a JSOC Task Force, a Joint Special Operations Command Task Force, and I was what's called an AFO, Advanced Force Operator. So I worked by myself in a singleton capacity to go out ahead of my unit and uh, build the infrastructure to put my assaulters on target to capture, kill bad guys. And so Aziz was my interpreter for that. He was also my teammate, and more, more so he became my friend. And we spent weeks, months together in those mountains, uh, you know, doing our operations, and when we go back on, on, on from operations, I wouldn't go to base, and he'd go home. I'd go home with him, and his wife Hatra would make meals for us. And I was there when his oldest son Mashub was born, and Mashuda, and uh, I held them as babies. And so they were very mm-hmm. close to me. And again, he saved my life multiple times. And I say that, but he probably saved my life every day. Like, don't walk there, don't eat that, don't <laughs> talk to that person. If you talk right now, they're gonna kill us. Uh, so he just, you know, he's the reason I'm I'm here today. He's the reason my wife has a husband that's home alive and my kids have a father. And so to think of leaving him there in Afghanistan during the withdra- this withdrawal was just something I couldn't do. And I, I, had to, I didn't have the ability to change the president's position on the withdrawal uh, that I didn't mm-hmm. agree with, and especially with how, uh, but I had the ability to help my friend. And, uh, and, I, and I just leaned on a, a bunch of other friends that I had that are special operators that didn't agree with that as well, and just said, hey, let's, let's go get Aziz. And I had some amazing people step up to, to join forces with me to go and get Aziz. I think people can relate to your situation there. You have someone that you care about in this mm-hmm. dangerous area. They're, they need help. How you handled it is just not normal, <laughs> okay? Uh, the normal reaction is to, I mean, as a uh, podcaster in good standing, the normal reaction is to complain about it a lot and, and hope something changes. You decided to actually do something about this yeah. in, in, a, in, a, in an incredible way. I mean, you decided, you use your expertise and go there in the middle of all this chaos and try to rescue Aziz. I mean, you know, give me, you got to give us a little bit of the conversation of you yeah. talking to your wife about this. <laughs> well, I mean, my wife was, yeah, I had this conversation with my wife and I said, look, you know, she knows who Aziz is. I mean, mm-hmm. she, she'd been around the whole time. So she's, she's like, I can't stop you because I know that if you don't go, I would never be able to live with you. Yeah. And you wouldn't be able to live with yourself. So she supported that initial operation. Later on in the operations, as the, and I'll talk about towards the end, the Tajikistan River operation, she was not on board with that. And it was, I remember the conversation going to the airport and she knew like me and Dennis Price were going to go into Tajikistan and swim in Afghanistan. She's like, I know you're going to go in. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to go in. And she's like, I know you will. <laughs> and, uh, and, and she was you know, upset, obviously. And, uh, and, I, and I just explained it like this. What, what if it was our daughter and this was us, what if, what if our daughter was gonna be sexually enslaved the rest of her life? What if it was our sons that'd be forced into madrasas and trained to, to, mm-hmm. in hate and become Taliban? We'd be praying that someone somewhere would come help us. And, uh, and, there, and there's someone somewhere right now praying that 
people that have the ability and means to go help will come for them. Hmm. And, and right now I felt that burden, I had felt that burden on my heart. I had the ability to do it and I couldn't not do it. Hmm. And, uh, and, and I remember her not being happy with that answer, but about an hour later after I was at the airport, she called me and she's like, I get it. Hmm. And be safe. It's tough. I mean, it's, a, it's an impossible position for yeah. both of you guys to be in. So you decide to go in and, and get Aziz. Can you kind of, I know you, you, the book, you have all the details in there. Yeah. But like, just tell us about, like, what is the, what is the state of play at this point? You're, you're going into a, a, a complete, you're, you're right at the beginning, right in the yeah. middle of all the crazy footage that's leaking. I mean, this is, this does not look safe at all for anyone. Sure. You go in anyway. Well, I mean, uh, we, we, Start planning, and, and that 12 guys have put together incredible, you know, uh, Green Berets, Navy SEALs, Force Recon Marines, uh, CIAs, paramil- like paramilitary officers from Ground Branch, guys with incredible experience. So we have all this ability to go and help one family, uh, which was selfish of me, but I was pretty determined I wanted to go get Aziz. Mm. And then one of our teammates pointed out something uh, that changed everything. He said, there's these 3,500 orphans that are going to be left there. Let's go get them too. And so we kind of pause for a second and look around this room, look at the experience we have and the willingness. Let's get as many Americans, interpreters and their families, uh, women, children, Christians, every persecuted. Let's get as many people as we can. Let's do it smartly, but let's get as many people as we can. And the group of people I had, the people I, that I selected to come were guys with that high level of special operations experience, but already had seen combat, were not itching to go get in a fight with the Taliban. They were mature men who was mm. willing to just go help people that couldn't help themselves, not do anything cowboyish. And so we made the decision to do that. And if we get credit for anything, and I've, we've gotten a lot of credit, you know, Glenn Beck, you were there that night when Glenn Beck gave me that Bonhoeffer Angel Award yeah. and Congress recognized us. And uh, the only thing I really take credit for was the fact that we all felt God had put a burden on our heart and we were obedient to that burden that God put on our heart. And beyond that decision, I believe what I witnessed was an absolute divine miracle because I'm not smart enough to, to do the things we did. I think Second uh, Corinthians 11, 11, 30 says, uh, if you boast, boast in your weakness. And I'll tell you right now, I'm not capable of pulling off what we pulled off. I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough experience. Not one of our team members did because what happened in those next three days was just a miracle. We've we seen uh, Sarah Verardo get permission from the Joint Chiefs to allow us as civilians to go in a DOD-controlled HKIA airport to do civilian evacuations. Anyone that knows the military knows that's completely impossible door to open. It's not a thing. Not a thing. Yeah. We were allowed to do that. And then we said, okay, now we're going we, to get people with SIV papers, P1, P2 visas. We're going to uh, vulnerable women and children. We're going to move them to another country. I can't move them to the United States because I'm not the State Department, but I can move them out of the country. But without visas, I have to have a place to move them to. Otherwise, that's human trafficking. The only place you can do that is in Laredo, Texas. But in the real world, you have to, uh, you have, to have permission. So we called the UAE. We knew some members of the royal family there, and we told them what we wanted to do. And they said, you could use our humanitarian center. They rolled out the red carpet, doctors, care, food facilities. And uh, in addition to that, they said, we'll give you a C-17 plane with pilots. If you fill it up, we'll give you another one. And then we got a call from our friend Glenn Beck, uh, who, you know, the Blaze uh, audience listening here, you guys are amazing. Glenn went on that radio and asked for support. I think he expected to raise thousands. He raised millions. Mm -hmm. And uh, in addition to that, Mercury One as his charity uh, said that they called, when Glenn called me, he said, we raised all this money, but we don't have a ground effort. Uh, And this is three days all this is happening, and God's just orchestrating these pieces together. And I said, I know exactly what you can do with that money. Uh, we need we need planes. And Rudy Atala came in and helped us to start chartering planes. And we just synergized this effort. And ultimately, in that week, 
you know, between our ground teams, our team in Abu Dhabi, no one stopped. If anyone stopped for five minutes, they felt like someone was going to die because it was that fast of a pace. Me and my buddy Seaspray lost 37 pounds in 10 days getting people. We got Aziz, we got his wife and kids, and, and, and the whole 10 days just went by in a blur, and, uh, and it ended with the Abbey Gate blowing up, 13 of our service members dying, mm-hmm. and, uh, and the military welded those gates shut. And then we were forced with a decision as the military was leaving to say, the military's leaving, they don't want to, but they're being forced to, but we, we don't have to. Uh, we're not obligated to leave. And uh, I think we, we made an important decision there to say, uh, the White House and the media is saying there's 100 Americans there. I'm not saying this is a debate or argument. I'm telling you there's a thou- there were thousands of Americans still there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we can't leave. And the truth is it didn't matter if there was 100 or 1,000. Or if there's one American left behind, the United States has responsibility. It's a promise to an American civilian that we will go get you. I mean, that's where I come from in the special operations community. Like, we'll scorch the earth around you to go get you if you're in harm's way. And uh, so it didn't matter if it was 100 or 1. It was, it was wrong to leave our civilians behind. It was wrong to do a, to move our military out and shut down our base before our civilians and our allies were out of there mm. and our equipment was out of there. But they created a scenario. We chose to stay. We did a collaborative effort for another two months in a place called the Mazda Sharif. A lot of organizations were involved, so not, we got a lot of credit for it because of the publicity of it, but there was a lot of amazing organizations, other nonprofits, and Mercury One was one of them, Mighty Oaks Foundation, Save Our Allies, Task Force, Argo, Pineapple Express, all these organizations doing amazing work, and we got another 5,000 people out, bringing us up to about 17,000. It's incredible. But still, that's when we ended up going to Tajikistan because we're still... There's so many people left. Was there? Were you surprised watch? You know, watching this all come together because I was watching, um, you know, like Dunkirk, right? Mm-hmm. And you see this happen where, like, you know, this is you know, citizens, experts, people. You know, people are here. You know, you're in Des Moines and you're wa- you're listening to Glenn Beck on the radio, and you have a hand in helping rescue these people. People from all over the country were able to chip in. Were you, as you're doing this, and you're obviously at the center of it, but as you're doing this, are you amazed at all these pieces aligning yeah. to make all this possible? Absolutely. It, one, one, I was amazed by it. Uh, and two, uh, I w- it gave me so much hope mm. uh, because I had, I, me and probably you know, everyone else in America, whichever side you're on, has been so frustrated. And, and the division and uh, just the, just the ugliness yeah. that we have in a, in a country that's supposed to be the United States of America. And it's a country that I love so much. And it, it, it had been really down. And in uh, this moment was a moment that the government did not do the right thing. And everybody on all sides believed that the government were not, was not doing the right thing. Yeah. And, and, uh, and when the governments of the world failed, good people stepped up and did the right thing from all different backgrounds. I had people that follow me on social media, just like I'm sure you do, that don't like me. They follow me to tell me ugly things. And, <laughs> yeah. and I had people writing me saying, hey, I don't like you. Like one, I remember specifically one person said, I don't like you at what you stand for, but what you're doing is great. Where can I donate? Wow. And, and wanting to give money to it. Uh, and, and this one Jewish organization uh, was one to help pay for planes. And they, had, they were paying for two planes. It was, one was 800000 one was 700000 $1.5 million donation. And Mighty Oaks, my foundation, is a Christian organization. And so they called, the guy called me and he said, hey, we couldn't make the donation. And I'm like, did I give you the routing number wrong? Yeah. What ha- he said, no, you're a Christian organization. We're a Jewish organization. And, uh, and I responded, I was like, okay, but you do realize we're helping Muslims, right? And uh, we just laughed and he made the donation. And, <laughs> and it, was just, it was just a beautiful moment seeing yeah. people from different political beliefs and different ideologies and religions and parts of the world just come together 
just to do the right thing because people were in need and uh, and they needed people to help them when they couldn't help themselves. And it was and 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 not a government in the world, not one government in the world. Uh, did the right thing in that scenario, mm. uh, but uh, people people did. It's really encouraging. Um, I want to take a quick break and come yeah. back on the other side. We've talked about what's you know the actual mission and everything. I want to talk to you a little bit about how we got there, yeah. why this mission was necessary in the first place. Mm-hmm. We'll do that in a second. Chad Robichaux back with more uh, in just a minute. We're back with Chad Robichaux. He is the author of Saving Aziz, How the Mission to Help One Became a Calling to Rescue Thousands from the Taliban. Um, we, we're t- as I think about your journey, I, you know, you wind up selfishly putting yourself in, in, into these stories. You know? And I think to myself, is there any part of this that I could have done? And there is a moment where you're swimming from Tajikistan into Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and I realized I can't even do the swim, <laughs> let alone all the stuff you had to do once you got there. Can you tell a little, talk a little bit about the story? Well, first of all, the Panjshir River is, is ice melt, uh, so it's like a slushy. Oh. Uh, if it, if the water stops, it freezes, so it's, it's cold, and then it got Category 5 rapids throughout it, so we had to find. Oh my but, you know, for 10 days, myself and Staff Sergeant Dennis Price, uh, we went traveled about 12 hours through the mountains of Tajikistan, got to the border, and, uh, and we um, did about 90 miles of border reconnaissance to do uh, to really assess the routes that people could come across because they had thousands of people stuck in the Panjshir Valley. They wanted to cross, mm. but those mountains are 25,000 foot peaks. Yeah. The Taliban infested them that area to stop the crossings. The Chinese military was there uh, protecting that border keep, to keep people in Afghanistan. The Russian military was there. Mm. Uh, the Tajikistan border guard was there. So at, there were times where we were like 30 yards from the Taliban uh, and, and we, at night, we'd do all the route recon in the daytime. At night, we'd do the fording reps, which is swimming across the river in Afghanistan and building the routes and, and plans out to pass that information to our government intelligence agencies that wanted that information. Um, and then uh, other NGOs that were doing evacuations and the commandos on the ground that were trying to get families and, and, and uh, civilians out. And so we provided all that information and it was uh, it was, it was a, it was a pretty crazy week, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, but going, going there, that's the one my wife was super uncomfortable with, but it just felt like we still had something left to do. Uh, I really, again, I believe that God was just really burdening my heart still to do that. And it was, it was one of those things that you can't just go there and, and do that if you want to. Even if you want to, there's a lot of doors that have to open to allow you to be in a place like that. Mm-hmm. And just every door felt like right. Every door opened for us. It just didn't feel like we were forcing anything to happen. And, uh, you know, and you know, it was, it was a success and, a, and I don't know how many people were able to use those routes to get out, but I, I know, you know, what we did in that river was able to, you know, save the lives of, of, of people that needed help. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about people who really helped our, you know, our soldiers. Uh, these are people f- you know, from Afghanistan who really helped people who are Americans just, you know, yeah. there. I, I did not have high expectations for the Biden presidency, to be yeah. clear. Mm-hmm. I did not think it was going to go well. He exceeded all of my expectations with the Afghanistan debacle. I mean, I, I just didn't think even a Democrat would allow something like that to happen, even mm-hmm. someone who was not aligned with me on policy. Sure. I mean, it was it was a catastrophe. It's the worst thing I've ever seen our government do when it comes, you know, related to the military, at least that I can know in my, in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, and, and watching it happen, it seems also unnecessary. Why... Why was there this idea that we had to get every asset, every person out of Afghanistan on these days, in this time frame? I know Donald Trump was the one who kind of set the time frame initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, Biden certainly made it much, much worse. But 
still, like, there was, there was a, a confluence of belief in the United States that we need to get out of here. Run. Run yeah. as fast as you can. We need to get out of here. We've been there too long. The war's been going on too long. And I kept coming back to the fact that that's not how you define success. You don't define success by how long you've been there. Is there something in America's interest there still for mm-hmm. us? I think the answer there was clearly yes. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think it's important to bring up because the reason we ended up in this position in the first place is because I believe the, the American people have been lied to uh, by mm. the mainstream media to say this pressure that we're in this long-term war, America's sons and daughters are dying, we have to get out of it. Uh, President Trump uh, started uh, talking to the Taliban, which I did not agree with. Uh, yeah. I don't think President Trump would have left uh, Bagram Air Force Base, would withdrew off Bagram Air Force Base, but he was negotiating with the Taliban. I didn't agree with that, and I didn't understand why he or President Biden would talk to the, the Taliban about this. Uh, when President Biden made the decision to do the withdrawal, which he started doing two days after he was in office, he was hastily wanting to do this. His Joint Chiefs, uh, all the Intel Committee was advising him not to do it hasty, mm-hmm. uh, to not withdraw in the way he did, but he did it anyway. And, uh, and, and he started negotiating again with the Taliban. The Taliban was our enemy for the last 20 years. No one consulted with the Afghan government that we put in place for the last 20 years. No one consulted with our international allies that were at Bagram Air Base. Why? And no one's asked that question even. Why on earth would they do this? Like, we put so many resources into this area. It's an incredibly important area geographically. You know, you, you, they're, keeping a sensible pre- presence, even just on this base, right. would, would send a message to that region, hey, don't get out of control. If something does get out of control, we can, cu- we can step in when, when needed. Mm-hmm. And instead of that, we just abandon all of it. We leave the equipment. We leave our people yeah. behind. I mean, this is insane. Well, Bagram Air Force Base, you're right, is, it's the most strategic place in today's globe. It sits between Iraq, Iran, Russia, and China. Uh, and so to give that base up strategically... One, it was it was not necessary, and two, it's not consistent with our history as being successful militarily around the world. Uh, mm. When I say it wasn't necessary, um, we had twenty five hundred to four thousand troops there at a time since two thousand eighteen. The, this lie of that uh, we've been it's in this long-term war, that ended in 2018 when we went shifted from uh, conventional kinetic combat with the Taliban to a support and advisory role with the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police. And we were not doing that alone. The entire international community was rotating on Bagram Air Force Base. We were participating together, and we had this international effort to help the Afghan National Army fight the Taliban and to keep them in the mountains of Afghanistan and away from America and the world in the West. And it was working. It was working perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. So there was no reason to do this in the first place besides political pressure or, uh, or uh, just to show that the administration did something. Uh, and so uh, by doing that, um, and I say it's inconsistent with our strategy, our historical uh, successful strategy in the world. You look at places like uh, Japan, where we have 80,000 troops still since World War II. It worked there. Germany, 40,000 troops since World War II. South Korea, we have 35,000 troops in South Korea since the Korea War. We, we have a history of being able to do this, and it works and keeps stability in the world. Uh, by leaving uh, Afghanistan, we created a vacuum that now our world's enemies get to go there. China. Russia, Iran, Pakistan, intelligence there. And not only that, but we left in a very uh, hasty way. We moved our military out, closed Bagram Air Force Base, before we had uh, our civilians out and our $85 billion in military equipment. Mm. 
and we didn't even have the extraction plan in place when we moved. We gave a date without terms. And uh, whenever you're doing negotiations, you never give a date without terms. The, I, again, I don't agree with the withdrawal. I believe we should have kept that contingent military force there and participated with the international community to keep terrorism there. Uh, but if we are gonna leave, you don't just say a date. You right. say, we will leave when we get our American citizens out, when we get our allies and interpreters out, when we get out our equipment, anything we want out first, that's when we'll leave. And then the administration goes back and tries to negotiate for more time, and the Taliban says no, and they totally concede to it. Uh, the Taliban was in control of this whole thing. It's embarrassing. And it was embarrassing. I mean, when we left $85 billion in equipment and technology and classified equipment at that. If, if an average U.S. military soldier uh, loses a pair of night vision goggles, they're going to jail. Uh, mm. And we're talking $85 billion, and there's no accountability. Well, I'm happy to hear today that there's going to be... Uh, Investigations opening up. Yeah, um, are you encouraged by? Are you? Do you think they'll get something out of that? I mean, even yeah. though it might be at some level a partisan exercise, yeah. I'm okay with it. We have to have yeah. answers on this. Yeah. I don't know that accountability will ever anyone will ever be held accountable for it, but I do want uh, at least through the investigations, the American people will know more about the truth. I mean, that's the reason I wrote the book. Yeah, uh, I want people to know what happened uh, there. So, um, what do you make of the argument from you know? And we have about, about a minute left, but yeah. you know, because conservatives have gone back and forth on some of this stuff. I think everyone got kind of sick of like, we feels like we're always at war. We've been over there forever. Mm -hmm. What are we even doing over there? Mm -hmm. And Trump, you know, has always been that way. He was sure. against the Iraq War very early. He was, you know, he was never, he never. Uh, I wouldn't classify him as a military hawk. Mm -hmm. So he was, you know, he kind of had a position where it was consistent with his view. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of Republicans, because he was, you know, the, the standard bearer of the party, mm -hmm. went along with, uh, with, with his view. And that adopted a lot of the stuff that was coming, I think, from the media and the left uh, on, on that particular war. And there were arguments to be made there. I mean, like, you know, maybe our approach needed to be different. Maybe yeah. it was a small force, whatever. But like a lot of people I talk to now on the conservative side say, hey, um, we needed to get out of there. I know it went badly, but we had to get out. I mean, it's, it, it, we got to stop all of our engagement in all these different wars. How do you, how do you answer that critique? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm not pro-war. Uh, I have 84 years of war in my family, uh, World War II, Korea. My mm -hmm. father, you know, we pretty much lost my father in Vietnam, even though he came home. Yeah. Uh, he died because of Vietnam. Uh, I did eight deployments to Afghanistan, buried 15 friends. My son went to Afghanistan. I am not pro-war at all. Mm -hmm. However... Uh, when America is strong and America has a strong presence in the world, the world is a safer place, including America. And so we could either choose to have contingents around the world to keep the fight there, or we could choose to let it come here or be in major wars. Having a small presence in Afghanistan of 2,500 troops and participating with the international community to do support and advisory roles and have small contingents of special operations, which, by the way, are all over the world anyway, mm -hmm. uh, Iraq, uh, I mean, uh, Iraq right now, Syria, uh, South America, Africa, uh, doing that prevents us from being in major wars. So I think people who say that need to really look at what they're saying and understand the dynamics of military strategy and security in the world. I mean, we have to have a, a prolonged presence in places like that are hotbeds like this once we establish them. You can't just give them up because they're going to create a, 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 an environment that provokes even a stronger war. I mean, look, our, our, us leaving our military presence in Ukraine allowed a vacuum for Russia to come across that border. And now we're at a war. People could say we're not in war with Russia. We're in a proxy war at Russia right now that could at any moment blow up into a real uh, war with Russia because President Biden moved U.S. troops out of, out of Ukraine. Uh, our presence in the world and our strength in the world prevents us from being at war. Mm. And I think when people say these things, they, they're really saying it 
more from a position of uh, principle and not really thinking about it from a strategic point and it, what it actually prevents. Yeah. Uh, leaving Afghanistan created a catastrophe. Weeks later, al-Zahari is running around Afghanistan and Kabul because, uh, because he feels safe to do so. It created a terrorism hotbed, terrorist hotbed, and now our enemies, uh, Iran, China, uh, they're, they're known to be on Bagram Air Force Base. We've given up that location to our enemies. Mm, it's really important stuff. An incredible yeah. story. Uh, Chad Rabuchow, he is, of course, the founder and CEO of the Mighty Oaks Foundation, USMC, Force Recon veteran, and author of the new book, Saving Aziz, How the Mission to Help One Became a Calling to Rescue Thousands from the Taliban. And uh, is it true? Like, are we going to see a movie of this thing, too? Does it yes. look like? Yes. Uh, amazing uh, 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 film producers, Darren Mormon in Hollywood. Uh, he's uh, fully funded already, so we're not wow. even seeking funding anymore. Uh, and it's going to be made in a motion picture film. And uh, it's very important to me that the world knows what happened mm -hmm. and uh, the truth. Although the movie is going to really be focused on mine and Aziza's you know, relationship back from 2003. And, uh, but it's going to cover the evacuation as well. Oh, I can't wait. I mean, yeah. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> Make sure to check it out. Make sure to pick up the book. It's out this week. It's a story that you need to know. And uh, Chad did so much important work when it comes to the efforts that you probably were involved in mm -hmm. uh, as you sent in your donations so much of this, all, so many things came together to make this incredible story possible. Chad, thanks so much for telling the story and coming on the program. Absolutely, Sue. Thank you. So Alec Baldwin is going to be getting some charges uh, in this shooting uh, case on the set of the movie Rust. He will be charged with involuntary manslaughter, now, of course, he was holding a gun, the gun went off, and uh, someone was killed. Um, so uh, he kind of thought maybe there'd be some charges. It's interesting, though, because as an actor, he's handed a gun from people who are supposed to be ex experts in these weapons. He believes, you know, either the gun is empty or, at the very least, that if there's bullets in it, they're blanks. And uh, then he pulls the trigger and someone dies. Now, at the very most innocent part of the story, you could argue that, like, you know, look, people fire fake guns or b blanks at people all the time and in movie sets. And it can't really be the responsibility of the actor to keep track of all this. I was talking about this with, with Sarah and Eric July over on News & Why It Matters today, and I didn't really understand. Like, it's a little bit tough to, I think it's a little bit of a reach to say Alec Baldwin should have known or something. Was he acting erratically on set? We don't know. It seems, though, like what they've really done here is say the set itself was sort of a, a disaster, was not safe, was not being run in the proper way, and Alec Baldwin is a producer on the, of the movie. So he's responsible, you know, the fake title he has as a producer, um, he's responsible for, you know, part of the way this whole set was run. So they're not really charging him as the guy who pulled the trigger in the death. They're, pull, they're charging him as a guy who... Uh, helped uh, maintain a set quality that was very low and led to irresponsible behavior. So it's interesting. If he does go to, this uh, max is uh, five years in jail. 18 months behind bars is normally uh, the involuntary ma uh, manslaughter situation, um, but there's a firearm enhancement to that charge, which could put him away for five years. My guess is that's not going to happen. I hate to ruin this uh, day for you, boys and girls, but uh, the odds of Alec Baldwin going to prison over this, probably pretty low. Maybe he would spend a little bit of time. Uh, I don't think he's going to spend anywhere near five years, uh, let alone 18 months, or let alone five years. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, the U.S. debt ceiling has been breached. Congratulations, everybody. We did it. 
We did it. Yeah, we hit the goal. We all wanted to get to $31.4 trillion, and we are here. Yeah, we did it. Uh, Je- uh, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, wrote a, ha- a, leader to, a letter excuse me, to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy informing him that the nation's outstanding debt is at $31.4 trillion, and now they're going to have to do all their games, all their little uh, accounting games. Now, accounting games include all sorts of different things. I won't bore you with all the details, but the bottom line is it can probably hold off catastrophe for, I don't know, four or five months. Uh, so they have some wiggle room here. We're not at the end of the road. Remember, the Republicans are saying right now that they want to negotiate over this. It's important for everybody to understand that. They are saying, look, we will vote for this if you do some cuts. But the whole point of having a debt ceiling is to remind everybody that we keep spending irresponsibly. And there has to be a, a, a barrier there so that we, people can come together and decide, hey, how are we going to cut this so this doesn't keep happening over and over again? The left wants a different narrative to be spun. They want people to believe this is just a normal part of government. Just you, Everyone's supposed to just come together without any disagreements and vote the debt ceiling higher. That's about working together. Well, what's the point of having a debt ceiling? Most countries don't have them. There's no reason to have one. The only reason to have one is to remind people you're spending too much money, and here's an opportunity for everyone to come together and change that for the future. The Democrats and the media, mark my words, will be telling you this is the Republicans' fault in a few months. But remember, Republicans are offering to negotiate on it now. Democrats are saying they will not negotiate on it. The Democrats could come to the table and offer their package to make this situation better going forward, and it could be negotiated out. That's not what they're doing, and it's not what they want. Uh, Finally, Minnesota Democrat uh, is, uh, is in the news. She is arguing for menstrual products in boys' bathrooms. Because as she says, not all who menstruate are female. Yes, they are. It's uh, 100%. 100% people who menstruate are female. Not, not 98%, not 99 but 100 100%. So there's a problem in the logic here, because when you say not all who menstruate are female, you're wrong if you use the word not. If you take that off and it just says all who menstruate are female, that's actually a correct statement. Maybe we should kind of focus on the facts every once in a while. What do you say? Take a moment, if you will, and subscribe to the podcast. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars when you rate and review and follow us on YouTube. Make sure to click like and click follow and click the bell. I don't know. Anything they'll let you click. Just click that. And uh, also drop your algorithmic engagement comments below. Uh, We do appreciate it. Algorithmic engagement comment. Girls gone wild. That's not, it's a little out of context, but we did talk about that a little bit yesterday. Um, how about this uh, from Greta Thunberg? Did you notice Greta's nylon ski jacket? <laughs> Remind me how that is made again? Hypocrite. <laughs> yes, it's made out of hypocrisy in this particular case, so that, that does work. This idiocy of gluing yourselves to things will stop when we simply leave them glued to their desired object. No reporters, no cameras, just act as if they weren't there. That is that is the solution. I mean, what, what what's the what's the timeline on that? Two weeks, two weeks of gluing someone to something, and they just stay there, and you don't really acknowledge them, and their little case is no longer supported. 
that'll be enough. No one was going to glue their themselves to things anymore. By the way, tomorrow I'm going to be uh, filling in on the radio program again with Pat Gray. And before that, more on trivia. Going over there, I think we're doing the Eagles game tomorrow on More on Trivia on Pat Gray Unleashed. Of course, part of your Blaze TV subscription, blazetv.com slash stew. The promo code is stew. We'll see you early tomorrow.